It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <laughs> Welcome to Swiss of Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. And your hosts, as always, are me, Bob Dale. And me, Ali Downey. Good evening, Ali Downey. How are you? I'm fabulous. Fabulous. You're looking wonderful fabulous. in your uh, very uh, 1940s RAF t-shirt there. It's good, isn't it? I'm enjoying it very much. Um, shoulder bits. Shoulder bits. You're wearing, you've come in the thinnest top you've ever worn and Leslie's got the fire on in the pub. Yeah. Just, that's the life we live. <laughs> are you well? It's good. To, I'm fantastic. I've had a great week. Good. You have uh, you have the boss up visiting. Yes. Um, we'll not embarrass her by talking about her while she's here. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, we've got CrimeCon coming up soon. We have CrimeCon coming up in less than two weeks. Oh, don't say that. I've not written a fucking quiz yet. Nah, you can write a quiz in ten minutes. That's true. I can give it a go. Uh, let's get this plug out of the way at the start. If you want to come to CrimeCon, you can. It's possible. You can also get ten percent off your ticket price by using the code Twisted at check out that's the most like wank thing i feel i ever say on the podcast but i do mean it we have a wonderful time at crown corner we know we've talked about it possibly too much on occasions but uh, the glasgow one's um, been revamped this year to be a different style and we're very much looking forward to it uh, if you're going to come and say hello and we'll say hello back yep that do it yeah we'll prop up the bar yeah i need to get a bus home at like 23 in the morning <laughs> Yeah. Is there a bus at 23 in the It's the, the last one, man. I've done it once before. Have I not told you this story? No. So on the way home from a work night out once, I got. I was like, I'm going to book the 23 bus. Nail it, get into Stirling. It's like, two, stops two places and then gets to Stirling. So it's like 40 minutes to get there. This arsehole wakes up five minutes after Stirling. Oh no, I do not mean to tell me that actually, yeah. Next stop's Perth, which is 30 miles away. Yeah. Uh, and I had to bribe another t- um, bus operator that was only accepting pre-bought tickets with £20 to take me home or well, I stay don't, in Perth yeah and I snowy I fell on my bum I was I was sober by the time I got home honestly it was, it was a terrible night um, really shit way to start a podcast sorry about that but there you are good times <laughs> these are the exciting lives we lead Alistair that's right living your best days um, in Perth you got lost in Florida recently we talked about that so I got very lost in Florida so that's my comeback to you being lost in Florida. Yeah. I, go, I went to Perth. In my defence, I drank four mojitos. Oh, I drank way more than that. I was on a watch night out. I was. 
But they were very big mojitos. I was slightly tipsy. Big mojito sounds like your boyfriend from Florida. Big mojitos. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on to some crime? Nah. Nah, just want just nah, to keep talking just, absolute just, nonsense. Let's just keep going, yeah. I always love that on yeah. podcasts when people just talk about nothing that you've tuned in for. It's great, isn't nope, it? Nope, absolutely not. <laughs> big shout out to Jamie from Smith's. He'll be inflating balls when he really listens to this. Thanks for inflating those balls, Jamie. That's right. I did that now because he said he wants to shout out at the start of the episode because he doesn't want to listen to the whole thing. Ah, fair enough. Uh, well, uh, thanks for joining us, Jamie. That was good. Good to get listen. Yeah, see you later. Do hit follow on and smash that like and bar. smash that like bar. Shall we actually move on to some crime? Yeah, okay, let's actually let's move on to some crime. I've had great fun uh, researching this week's case. I saw you on, uh, on my phone researching things. It was as if you'd appeared on my social media channels. It was like some kind of fucking wizardry. A lot, of, pe- a lot of people have been freaked out by the fact that I posted on social media. I mean, why would they know who you are? They don't know who Who's, I am. Who is this interloper? There's been quite a few <laughs> who is this guy's. Um, Ali, Ali, who is Ali? But what it proved to me was you can't actually work your iPad. You just don't ever fucking bring it with you. No. Right. <laughs> tell I, us. Tell I just us needed the right motivation. Tell us why our tale inspired that beautiful picture of research. Well, this this is a this is a great story. Good. Um, it is, it's a it's a double poisoning story. Nice. A pair of women. A pair of poisoners. A pair of poisoners in the 1800s in Liverpool. But it's also very probably a larger conspiracy, which is why I really enjoyed the last bit of research for it. I think I said to you in our last episode, I've got some things for you. A shipwreck in the Caribbean, an ancient family, yeah. and a curse. I think you might have just equaled that. Conspiracy. Pair of poisonings, conspiracy. Uh, I would imagine 18... What did you say? 18... 1880. 1880s Liverpool would have been a mad place to be. Yeah. It would have been wild. And these were sisters as well. So anyway, let's, let's just get right into it. Uh, the sisters were Catherine and Margaret Flanagan. Okay. Now, Catherine Flanagan was born in 1829 in Ireland. And very little is actually known about Catherine's early life or childhood. She did have one sister, as I mentioned, called Margaret, who was 14 years younger than her. Okay. I was going to say Irish when you said Flanagan, but I thought I'd just wait and see. But I presumed it being Liverpool in that time period and the, the name Flanagan. We're yeah. going Irish here, yeah. 100% Irish. Uh, she was born, Margaret, in 1843. Good maths. Yeah, no, quick math. <laughs> we can assume the two siblings had a fairly impoverished upbringing, shall we say. The mid-1800s were a very tough time to live in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, the Act of Union in 1801, meant that for the time being, at the time, uh, Ireland was part of Great Britain. Okay. Uh, the Act, right? Yeah. When was that? 1801. 1801. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Act, as everyone probably knows, was passed... <laughs> Not through, me. <laughs> through the, apart from Bob. <laughs> Turns out. Yeah. But it was passed through the Irish and English parliaments with mass bribery of dozens of MPs. Is that conjecture or fact? Here? Fact. That's fact. Right? Okay. Absolute fact. I'm okay with that then. Uh, the Union Act was also staunchly and actively resisted and resented by the majority of the population. I mean, it will, it will have, without doubt, been done for financial reasons and nothing else. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it led to widespread military action across the country to keep the peace. For a while. For a long, long time. So Catherine and Margaret actually moved to the UK in the 1840s. Most likely along with hundreds of thousands of other Irish immigrants who fled the great Irish famine of the 1840s. 
And a lot of them went to Liverpool and the, the kind of docks and everything. A down, lot of them. Down that stretch, because that's your immediate port, isn't it? Yeah, a out? lot of them went to Liverpool. And I'm deliberately not calling it the potato famine. No, because it wasn't actually just about a potato crop, was exactly. it? Exactly. No, the, the major, a major contributing factor was the Europe-wide potato blight, which wiped out whole crops of the staple spud. Blight, that's the word I, would, I couldn't get there in my head. Yeah. I think we've got it in our potatoes this year. Really? Yeah. But that was the 1840s. Uh, Shit fact, but there you go. But I feel like... I feel like calling the disaster the Irish potato famine, though, makes it sound like all the Irish grew or ate was potatoes. Is that not a fact? No, it's not. And it was not the sole cause of the famine. In reality, the Irish people, under normal circumstances, ate as varied a diet as anyone in Scotland or England. Did the potatoes provide the crop for the leprechauns no. that the Irish then ate? No. Okay. No. I don't know if I'm following this. No, but by the 1840s, the contemporary government and the occupying English army had plundered, stolen, appropriated, and pinched almost all the rest of the food. <laughs> that was the official line. They've pinched it all. Yeah, which left the poor and the peasantry with very little to eat except potatoes. Yes, so it was the opposite of the potato famine. It was a potato gorging. Yes, until the blight. Until the blight. So, but for Catherine and Margaret, anyway, getting back to the case at hand, this meant uprooting from their home in Ireland and relocating to Liverpool. Now, Liverpool in the 1800s, or in the early 1800s at least, was an up-and-coming port city, constantly expanding, with an influx of new workers to fill new jobs being created all the time. Many of these new workers in Liverpool were from Ireland. In fact, by 1851, it was estimated that of the 300,000 people living in Liverpool, 25% of them were Irish immigrants. Wow, that's a huge amount. It is. And, and we are talking the same period of the, as the, the Peaky Binders episodes that you did recently. That's the same influx of people. Exactly. Right. Birmingham experienced the same massive influx of Irish immigrants. Have you just found a series of mid-1800 Irish immigrant books? You're just working your way up from Birmingham through Liverpool? No. Next is Cumbria. <laughs> no. I actually, I got this case from a book called Scottish Murders. Ah, yes. Which I accidentally left on a bus when I fell asleep on the bus going down to Bournemouth and I woke up after the bus had reached London and had gone to the bus cleaning depot and I was on an empty bus being pressure hosed down by workmen. A lot of bus stories this episode, isn't there? Yeah, there is actually. Um, you might... I made it home at least. Did you, get, did you get washed or just the bus? Just the bus got washed. But yeah, I woke yeah. up on an empty bus, no driver. Okay, you get the worst. All oh, right, you win the bus stories... Bonus points of this episode. Fortunately, I was only 10 minutes walk away from Victoria Station. I was 30 miles from home. Yeah, you were. <laughs> anyway, getting back to the case again, there's no record that I could quickly find about what happened to the sisters' parents. Uh, but we do know that Catherine and Margaret grew up in and stayed in Liverpool. Catherine herself opened a pub of sorts on Liverpool docks. A pub of sorts? Yeah, I say of sorts because it, it almost certainly wasn't a pub in the sense that we would think of one, or in the sense that we are right now sitting in. So not like a public house? No. A drinking den? No, absolutely not like a classic public house. In 1830, the uh, UK government passed the Beer House Act. Sounds like I'm not going to like this. No, it was, it was really good. This greatly lifted restrictions on the brewing and sale of beer and ale. I'm, so far, I'm on board. Yeah. It was an attempt to curtail the drinking of strong spirits, though. It's stop homebrew. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, just regulating an industry. Yeah, and also to try and create competition in the market. 
Great. Actually, that probably makes sense. I'm just thinking out loud. I once uh, did some... I'm not going to say filming. I nearly did it again. I once did... The... That's interesting, actually, because thinking about it, I once did a tour of the Bellhaven Brewery, which oh, yeah. is the, the, the oldest act, still active brewery in Scotland, and it would be around about that time. So I wonder if that's just because it would have been sanctioned as a brewer rather than being an independent thing before that? Almost certainly. Right, okay. And this act worked. In fact, it almost worked too well. What, it just choked competition? Well, within a few years, thousands of new public houses and breweries had been opened across the country. Ah, okay. Now, some were very reputable and respectable and turned into places like the Bellhaven. Yeah, or or Green King or any of the big ones, I would imagine, that uh, span from that kind of time frame. (laughs) I would imagine come from that kind of time frame that we're talking about. Exactly. But some, like Catherine's, were little more than a window of a ground floor flat with some chairs outside and some very questionable brewing going on in a bathtub. It does sound I would like it though. I think I might. Yeah, Catherine's bar, as I said, was questionable. Uh, In fact, garnered a reputation for being the hangout of petty criminals and prostitutes from all across the city. Sick. She also opened her bar on a Sunday, which was still against the law. How do you do the quiz if you the pub's closed on a Sunday? I don't know. I have no experience to settle in quiz. You did. I was hosting, and you came. You two came along to the quiz. That was I very did kind of you. Terribly. You did what were terribly. all those geography questions about? Geography. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Catherine's location on the Liverpool docks meant that her shifty ass little bar did very well. Did you just segue from geography into location? I, I enjoyed did. it. Carry on. Uh, so well that she was able to splash out frequently in ways that most of the lower classes of Liverpool could only dream about. Oh. Like a better cut of clothes and the ability to feed herself. Yeah, I mean, these wonderful things to have. Yeah. I would probably put the fe- ability to feed yourself above the g- cut of clothes, but, you know, you're the stylish one of the two of us, so... I am. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, for Catherine, by the 1860s, the government were now becoming increasingly concerned about the level of lawlessness at the beer houses they had caused to open. Yeah, so I wonder, like, I would imagine there'd be some kind of process to go through to be allowed to be opened as a beer house. There was before, but with the Beer House Act, you paid one guinea for a licence, and that was it. Because I was thinking the other way around. I wondered if we were going to end up with a load of, like, illegal dens. No, they paid one guinea for a licence, and they eliminated all property qualifications so you could do it from your own home. Fine, I think. Yep. Kind of. But not a good thing in, in the long run, then. No, not in the long run, because they, they became a den for... Iniquity. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And the government clamped down on them, shall we say. Okay. First, the property qualifications that I mentioned were reintroduced to try and close the sort of ground floor flat pubs like Catherine's. Um, but these proved incredibly difficult to enforce and they did almost nothing to actually solve the problem. Oh, they just made, they made the law and didn't actually do anything about it? Yeah. Right. Next, the licence fee was increased to three guineas. Holy shit. That's like £450-odd pounds in today's money. Okay. So it's not... It's not insignificant. It's but not insignificant, but it's not unachievable. But most of the problem pubs like Catherine's didn't pay licence fees anyway. Right, yeah, okay, fine. So that's not going to make any difference to them? No. But in 1869, Parliament passed the Wine and Beer House Act, 
which gave control of all licensing back to local justices. So local government now decided who has a license and who doesn't. So the council becomes has a licensing board. Exactly. Right. And that spelled the end for bars and pubs across the country, including Catherine's. Okay. So she's pretty pissed off at this point. Yeah, she's not pissed off. She did very well from her little pub. But she does need a new source of income. Uh, a new revenue, shall we say. Okay. Uh, she chose small-time money lending. Okay. I, I genuinely didn't know where you were going to go there. Like I was trying to think, like, does she go and landlady in a pub somewhere? Or, but yeah, no, she's got, uh, she's got some dollar. Yeah. And this was a very lucrative business in the 1800s. So many of the lower class were unable to borrow money through, like, conventional means. Yeah, I mean, they can't go to the bank because they've got nothing to loan the money against. Exactly. Uh, so they had to turn to the far higher interest rates and the no returns policies of back alley money lenders. I've done a, an episode that I did and Rosalind was my guest on it. Um, it was about loan sharks and stuff and it's, it's a mad world. Yeah, it's wild. You can just make it up. Now you're right about Catherine's financial status, shall we say. Uh, she did already have savings. And if they were ever depleted, she could also herself borrow money legitimately at reasonable rates and then lend small amounts at ridiculous rates to those oh, who have no choice. Because she had a property to secure it against or whatever, she could go the, the legal route. Exactly. And then use her legally obtained money to create huge amounts of illegally created money. Exactly. It's not a bad pyramid scheme, is it? No. And she was smart as well about how much and to whom she lent. Small amounts to people she knew was her market. Okay, here's a fiver, I want six quid back next week. Yeah, if you change the six quid to 15 quid. Oh, right, okay. These were crazy rates of interest. Okay. However, she did remember run a very disreputable bar for years. So she knew a lot of disreputable exactly. people. Exactly, she knew a lot of people, and those people knew a lot of people. So Catherine's money lending business did incredibly well. And she's just doing small amounts... Yep, just small amounts Literally here and just there. spreading it all around. Yeah. So you're, you're at least getting some of it back. Yeah. It's not a bad, do you know what? It's not a bad business model. It's a great business model. It did so well that in 1880, she bought a lodging house at 5 Skirving Street in Liverpool. Nice. I think. Mm, no. No. Okay. <laughs> now, getting back to Margaret, though, uh, I can't find nearly as much or anything, really, about Margaret's life before this point in our story. Is, sorry, so I know we're going right back to the beginning here, but who's the elder of the two? Catherine. Catherine's the elder. Catherine's 14 years older than Margaret. So, right, and now we're getting on. So you don't know as much about Margaret, even though she's younger? No. And it might have been more modern record? I just, uh, yeah, fair enough. No. Uh, there, are, there are Margaret Flanagans of the right age listed in census material and stuff. Right, okay. But very little more than that. Yeah, and I suppose if she's... Not done anything. Exactly. It wouldn't have been recorded. No. Okay. But she re-enters our story now. When Catherine employs her to help run the boarding house that she's just bought at 5 Skirving Street. And you say now, when are we talking? This is like 18... 1880. This is in 1880. This is 1880. Right. Now, these lodging houses were poor accommodation for poor people. Okay. Whole families crammed into one room... Like a DOS house, like a poor house. Yeah, a DOS pretty house much. isn't the right word, but you know, like a proper... Yeah. Come in, geese a, geese a guinea, lie down. Yeah. Glasgow would have called it a single end. Okay, fine. It's one room, one family. 
uh, because of the whole overcrowding and overpopulation that we're becoming real problems now. Yeah, okay. Because because of that influx of Irish people that we were talking about. Yes, there was a massive influx of these Irish immigrants in the early 1800s. Uh, and then, I think 1870-ish, I mentioned it later, is the Great Depression. Right, okay. Jobs go, but the people keep coming in. Right, okay. So overcrowding and overpopulation start to become horrendous problems. To give an idea of the scale of the problem, uh, Liverpool was officially granted city status in 1880, I think. Right. And at that time, the estimated population was 600,000. It was a big town in 1880. It's also a doubling of the population in 30 years. Oh, shit, yeah, of course, because you said it was like they were 25% or 300,000, yeah. 30 years ago. That's an incredible influx of people. There simply wasn't enough housing or jobs yeah. for that many people. I suppose we've, we've seen a massive population boom. When you look at those population curves of the world, and I know this is a really random thing, but you look at it from, like, and from the 1960s onwards, it just goes like that. Straight yeah. to the roof. But before that, it was a fairly steady, low-level curve. So I suppose a doubling in 30 years in the 1800s is just, like, insane. Yeah. And jobs, as well, were becoming, if anything, scarcer. Because the Great Depression, which was the late 1870s, continued to take its toll. So there's more poverty. There's more people and more poverty. Yeah. And it was this demand... And uh, need, really, for cheap accommodation that led to the popularity and the necessity of skanky little lodging houses like Catherine's. Uh, and I presume she would have been lending money at the same time. Yeah, she was. But as well as Margaret and Catherine, uh, there was also... Maggie's and Cat. Nope. There was a 22-year-old son, John, Catherine's son, John Flanagan. Right, Okay. So he's only, he's only like seven or eight years younger than... Uh, Margaret. Margaret? Yeah. Okay. And he was just helping them out. Just being there? Yeah. Don't get too attached to him, though. Oh. Uh, tenants were not difficult to find. I don't like it when you do that. Sorry. You seem like a nice wee young guy. Uh, no. No? Okay. Tenants were easy to find uh, with the clamour for cheap accommodation that was going on. And before long, the lodging house was full. It was only a two-room lodging house, though, so fool's not a lot of people. <laughs> it's, it's, it might be 12. It could be, but it wasn't in this case. In one room was a gentleman by the name of Thomas Higgins, who stayed with his daughter, Mary. And in the second room, a gentleman named Patrick Jennings, along with his daughter, Maggie. Jennings is a good name. Curse you, Jennings. Yeah, curse you, Jennings. Uh, John Flanagan was described by everybody except his mother, as a strong, hard-working, if a little quiet, man. <laughs> By everyone except his mother. Oh, yeah. Uh, Catherine... Would, I, I think I know his pain. <laughs> Catherine would frequently describe him as a sickly, lazy, good-for-nothing son. Oh, yeah, okay. That's ringing more and more true with me than... than, my, than my... <laughs> the more I read. Uh, with this in mind, though, it came as a shock to everyone who knew John when he died suddenly, near the Christmas of 1880. Near the Christmas of 1880? December. Yeah, in December of 1880. <laughs> I just like the way you said it. <laughs> now, it could be said to have come as less of a surprise to his mother, Catherine, who had very recently registered John with multiple burial societies. Uh. Yeah, this was a bit like life insurance for the poor. 
Okay, I, I was just about to say, so he had life insurance. Yeah, it's, it's life insurance, but it's not life insurance. On the death of the person, uh, a sum will be paid to the claimant in order to cover funeral costs. So, so like a savings account for, the, for death? Sort of, yeah. There was like a one-off pay-in, and you got a pay-out at death, which would cover funeral costs. It was a very common practice among the lower classes in crowded cities where funeral costs literally couldn't be met since people were actually living hand-to-mouth. I wonder, and complete conjecture, just thought out loud, if the people who were collecting that five pounds or whatever it was payment in were then lending it out like Catherine was. A lot of them probably were. Yeah, I just wonder, like, that, that's the, the easiest way they're going to make money on those payments, isn't yeah. it? And how many people were doing what Catherine did and taking out multiple burial society policies on the same person? With different hands here, there, and everywhere. Then. Exactly. The multiple policies that Catherine took out in this case added up to a sum totaling £71. Wow. That would be about five and a half grand now. Is that worth it? It doesn't sound a lot, but five and a half grand in today's money was a lot more back then. Funerals were not expensive. Right. I was going to say, because I'm I, very lucky to not know what of funeral costs. Thank goodness. Um, but I don't feel five grand covers it. No, not now. I just don't. I just, no matter what you do, whether you go with a cardboard box or cremated or whatever it is, can't see it being less than five grand. No. It wouldn't be. Yeah. Don't know. And actually, if you do know, I'm very sorry for your loss, and you don't need to tell us. We'll just find out one day. Yeah, we'll look it up. Don't worry about it. <laughs> anyway, this wasn't super suspicious. At this time in Liverpool, it wasn't unusual for young men, even seemingly healthy young men, to die suddenly of typhoid or gastroenteritis. The time they were living in. Exactly. So nobody took any real notice of John's death. It's a bit sad statement, isn't it? It's a shame. But now... Mr. Thomas Higgins, who stayed in one of the rooms, he would start a relationship in 1882 with Margaret Flanagan, the younger of the two sisters. So was she involved in the lodgings then? Yeah, she helped Catherine run the lodging house. Right, so they would have met by him being there. Yeah. And from there, they blossomed into a beautiful relationship. Sure. Right, okay. <laughs> it might not have been that beautiful. They did marry in uh, late 1882, so that's pretty beautiful. It's lovely, yeah. Yeah, less beautiful, though. I'm not going to say anything about short-term relationships ending up in marriage. Yeah, less beautiful. Within a few months of the wedding, uh-huh. Thomas Higgins' now eight-year-old daughter Mary became suddenly ill. Oh, Mary. And died. Oh, I don't like it when you do that either, to be honest. Sorry, this time it was Margaret who collected the burial society policies, which amounted to about £22. Oh, so that's like 15 grand-ish. Yeah. Because we've, yeah. We've gone up. Still not a lot of money. This is enough money. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. Have you lost your place? Slightly. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A few months later, uh, in January of 1883, Maggie Jennings, the daughter of the other lodger, Patrick Jennings, also fell ill and died suddenly. A lot of sudden death going on here, Ali. A lot of sudden death. Uh, Maggie as well had been 19 years old and in excellent health. I mean, this is not boding well. Again, Catherine and Margaret would collect the money from multiple burial societies. So, right, we said originally £7,000 in today's money is not a huge amount of money. And then we got up to £15,000 in the last one. Um, or even more than that, actually, doing the, the quick maths. Um, would, would they just play in the long game? Mm, yes. Or they didn't, at this point at least, want to draw attention to themselves. That's what I mean. Like, are they going that we'll get a million pounds, but we'll do it by killing 20 folk rather yeah. than going, we'll just get a million pounds for insuring this one weird guy for a million pounds? Because it's not easy, actually, to insure one weird guy for a million pounds. No, I've tried it so many times. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Jennings now passes from our story as he moves himself to a new area of Liverpool, and we don't hear about him again. Uh, the rest <laughs> of the remaining household... And he lived happily ever after. He probably didn't live happily ever after. His oh. daughter's just died. Oh, okay. I was trying to be nice, Al. Bring the downer. There's no room for nice. There's no room for nice here. This isn't twisted niceness. No, it's not. That'd be a good podcast. Maybe we should, no, carry on. Twisted niceness. Twisted niceness. Don't know how we'd do it. I could come up with nice tales. Right, we'll do one for Patreon. Done. Do, do a twisted niceness one. We'll do a twisted niceness one. Perfect. Anyway, the rest of the remaining household now moved to 105 Latimer Street. And before long, they would move again, uh, this time to 27 Ascot Street. Okay. There's not much of the household left, to be fair. It's just Catherine, Margaret, and Thomas. I also know where Ascot is, so that's fine. That's the race course. Nice. It's here at 27 Ascot Street in September of 1883 that Thomas Higgins would fall ill. And... Predictably, at this point, given the trend, die suddenly. I mean, it seems to be what happens around this family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's five or four. You. I I know. <laughs> I have it in front of me on paper. Do you want to try that last bit again? Or you no, like, it's fine. Okay, cool. In this case, a doctor was actually called uh, before Thomas died, but he was unfortunately misdiagnosed as having dysentery. Brought on by drinking cheap whiskey. To be honest, you should never drink cheap whiskey. Absolutely true. You should always pay the extra money to have a good single malt, and yep. you will just your your soul will love you more. Yeah. If you want my advice, have a uh, more. Oh. And spicy. If, if anyone from Bowmore is listening, I am available <laughs> yeah, to yeah. be sent free bottles of Bowmore at any time. Are we do we're doing this now? Yeah. Sure. Anyone send your send your Bowmore bottles to me. I will 100% beat that, don't worry. Um, however, Highland Park, if you are listening, <laughs> send care of the settle in and I'll fucking take it. 
I might beep your address. I might not. You don't have to. <laughs> For his dysentery, Thomas Higgins was prescribed opium and broth. Opium and broth. It was very dilute opium. I wondered whether you were going to say it was shit broth or not. I was going to say distilled for a second, and I was like, that's the exact wrong word. Distilled broth. It was very dilute opium uh, and thin broth. Why? Which, which would have helped his dysentery if he had dysentery. Oh, yes. Yeah. It wasn't going to do much for his arsenic poisoning, though. Ah, uh, we'll be back to our old pal. Our old friend Arsenic. We often come back to arsenic, don't we? It's weird. It's such a, um, in hindsight of poisoning, and we've probably talked about this briefly in the past, but in the hindsight of poisoning, literally one of the worst ones they could have used for where modern, for where science went, because it doesn't degrade. We talk about people who have been dug up after they've been buried and still having arsenic in their, their uh, what's left of them, shall we say. The goo. I, I was trying to skip away from that, but yes. It didn't degrade at all. No. Uh, whereas um, some of the other poisons that were available and, 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 and literally you just signed and said, I'm not going to kill a person and you could have some from a pharmacy. Also, it was so widely available in, in rat poisons and pesticides and makeup, makeup and yeah. sometimes boiled sweets. Oh, yeah. The humbug poisoner or the humbug, was it the humbug poisoner? It was the humbug poisoner. He was one of my favourite tales, actually. That was a good one. Because they literally went out in the street ringing the bells. Yeah. That was good fun, yeah. When Thomas died two days after he saw the doctor, the first thing that his grieving widow Margaret did was collect five different insurance policies and burial societies, totalling over £100 this time. Holy shit, she's really upped it. They have upped it. They've also moved from just burial societies to actual life insurance policies as well. Probably because they had enough to invest at that point. Yes. Or they were getting greedy, one of the two. Yeah, probably a combination. Yeah. But what the sisters didn't know was that Thomas Higgins had actually confided to his brother that an insurance agent had turned up with a doctor in order to examine him. Right, okay. Uh, Thomas was drunk at the time and <laughs> Good lad. gave him the short shrift and chucked him out of his single end. Get out of my house, do not look at me. Yeah. Do not pass go, do not collect 100, 200, 200 pounds. 200 pounds. Yeah, I, I, she'd have killed anyone for 200 pounds at this point. Yeah, she'd have strangled you for 200 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that this is sort of greed, though. Uh, Catherine Flanagan had tried to insure Thomas to the sum of 50 pounds with one insurer, and that meant that the insurance company had arranged for a doctor's visit. Yeah, so she got... Beyond the point where nobody was going to check. Exactly. Literally, there's an audit on this one because it's, it's worth a decent amount. Yeah. And the brother, Patrick Higgins, seems to have been quite a sort of tenacious dude. He wasn't going to let this drop. And he made the rounds of local insurance companies and burial societies. And he found out that Thomas's life had been insured with several of them. Well, he just did the footwork. He did the footwork. And just went, have you got a, have you got a policy out on this guy? Yeah. And just asked everyone. Yeah. Because I suppose they'd know the other companies and the other, um, what was it, sorry, what was it that you called them, the, not like, burial societies. Burial societies. I suppose he'd know the people that were doing that. Yep. And he also visited the doctor who certificated the death. Right. And he informed him of his suspicions and together they approached the authorities. So the, 
mean, I don't know how many times I need to say it all boils down to money. But literally because some dude was like, nah, fuck this. He just did the legwork and found out they're at it. Yeah. And between him and a member of the law, they were mm-hmm. like, they were like, somebody needs to have a deeper look into this. Exactly. The brother, Patrick Higgins, raised red flags. Red flags which should have been raised ages ago. Stop waving red flags. Sorry, I was thinking, I was channeling one of those aircraft guys. Oh, yeah. So on the day that Thomas Higgins was supposed to be buried, a coroner's officer and two doctors entered 27 Ascot Street, where the body would have been laid out. Yeah, because they did that mad stuff, didn't they? They did, and they found several females and uh, two men around the coffin indulging in a party. Having the wake? No, there was very little grief involved in this party. Just enjoying the champagne over his body. Yeah, this was a party. Fuck, man. Uh, Catherine Flanagan, when she saw them come in, gave a cry of alarm and bolted out the back door. She cheesed it. She cheesed it. Nice. 100%. Cheesed it. 100% Uh, cheesed it. It's a serious cheesing. And the coroner's officer gave notice to Margaret that the funeral was not going to go ahead. So they just commandeered the body and were like, this this stops now until we have a look at this. Yeah, exactly. They can do that. Oh, no, I believe they do. Still do it now. It's quite a cowboy feeling to rock up into a room where clearly people are celebrating a death. Yeah. And just go... You fucked it. Yeah. No. We're taking this with us, thank you. Definitely not. And the post-mortem would prove that Thomas Higgins had died from arsenic poisoning. You shock me, Alistair. I know. It would also prove that it had been administered over a very long period of time. Slow, slow dripping. Yeah. Uh, so Mrs. Higgins, Margaret. Margaret. Uh, was arrested on the spot. Well... We do find with poisoners, however, it's quite a personal crime, and, and, and it's, this doesn't surprise me that they would seem to be poisoning the people around them, and the first person you're going to arrest in this kind of scenario at all times is the next of kin. Yep. Because we've talked about it on occasion where it's either the next of kin or random. Yeah. There's very little in that middle ground. It, all, it also boils down to our, oh, the cash theory. The next of kin is usually the person who will benefit the most. Yes, absolutely. From someone's yeah, death. Yeah, absolutely. But in this case, of course, the next of kin was almost instantly arrested. So she's not going to benefit from the cash, but she falls into our other theory. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, she falls into both, but yeah. So Margaret's down the nick. Down the nick. Uh, Catherine, though, evaded capture for several days. What? Did she she cheesed she, it out the back door. Just kept cheesing and it. And kept cheesing it. She was like an, an e-dam up the road. Yeah, but she didn't actually leave Liverpool. Oh, she didn't cheese it that well then? No. It's back to cheddar. Yeah. Back failed, to cheddar. failed cheese. A failed cheese sounds rubbish, doesn't it? It's like a cheese string. Yeah, that is a failed cheese. I don't trust cheese strings. But if they'd like to sponsor us. <laughs> yeah, but a cheese string want to sponsor us, that's absolutely fine. Send your cheese strings. Stop giving your address on the podcast. Send me cheese strings is also one, one of the best things you've ever said. <laughs> Catherine was eventually arrested uh, a few days later after a tip-off from a member of the public. Now that both the sisters are in custody, yep. Um, 
there will be a trial, obviously, but before the trial began, the investigation continued. The bodies of John Flanagan, Mary Higgins, and Maggie Jennings were all exhumed and all showed signs of arsenic poisoning. The small sign of still having arsenic in their blood. Exactly. Right. Uh, the investigators were briefly baffled by how the two women could have actually obtained the arsenic. There was no mention of either woman in any of the chemists in Liverpool, like in their documentation. Okay, because so, we know from other historical cases that, that arsenic was available as a rat poison or as a cosmetic in apothecaries. Apothecaries. I always get that wrong, don't I? Yeah. And all you had to do was sign, I won't kill folk with this. Yeah, exactly. But the uh, arsenic in rat poison and cosmetics would leave other telltale signs. Okay. Apart from just arsenic. And there was uh, no telltale signs. So this wasn't rat poison arsenic and it wasn't cosmetic arsenic. So this was one of these old school brown bottles with a cork in it. Poison written on the front. Maybe. I really want it to be. It was actually Catherine herself who cleared up this mystery. Tell us, Catherine. In trying to pass as much, if not all, of the blame for the crimes onto her sister. Good. She testified that Margaret had extracted the arsenic from common flypaper. She hadn't. It's possible. A lot of flypapers at the time did use arsenic as a pesticide. I don't disagree with that. I do disagree with the, it's possible. Was she, was she a chemist? No, but you could just scrape it off. Oh, like, I thought you meant she, like, but surely if you scrape it off, there's other shit there, though. Yeah. But you said it was clean. No, I said it was free of the telltale signs that would have told this was rat poison or this was cosmetic. You're right, that was my understanding rather than your words, but we'll go with it, okay? Nah. No, no. But it was... Flypaper arsenic. So it's literally not the, the bottle I'm talking It's not that you've got a clean supply of pure arsenic. No. She yeah. scraped it off of flypaper. She actually did that. One of them. We don't know which. What? Either Catherine or Margaret. Sorry. I thought you scraped meant, it off of flypaper. I thought you meant different brands of flypaper. Couldn't even name one. No. <laughs> <laughs> Flytrap.com. Anyway, let's get back to this. Yeah, sorry. I went off on one there. The trial of the two sisters took place on the 14th of February, 1884, at Liverpool St. George's Hall. Happy Valentine's Day. Woo! Uh, with Lord Justice Butts residing. <laughs> Have we spoken about him before? He comes up more than once. Yeah, comes up Butts. <laughs> no. It's always coming up Butts. <laughs> the trial would last just three days. Uh, the case for Thomas Higgins was heard first. And it was conclusive. Yeah. Yeah. After three days, when the trial did conclude, it took the jury 50 minutes to bring back a verdict of guilty for both Catherine and Margaret, which isn't a long time. We've had shorter. We've had shorter. We've had way shorter. But yeah. 50 minutes is not long to deliberate. Uh, we talked about that in the, the Titchborne uh, claimant, and you were shocked when I was like, it only took them 30 minutes to find him guilty. That was incredible, though. But we also have to recognise, I think, that it takes, like, two minutes to stand up. Yeah. Three minutes to walk out the room. Yeah. Uh, we all all right with this? Two minutes to turn around, walk back, you know. So 15 minutes is, like, 
they already fucking knew. Guilty, 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 guilty. Sweet, let's go. Yeah, literally, they just do the once around the room. Yeah. Back in. Cup of tea. You can get a cup of tea, aren't you? Do like a good cup of tea. And a biscuit. That'll be what took 50 minutes. The chewing of the biscuit. Yeah. We've had a lot of problems with uh, chewing with nuts this evening. You have. Just me, I need to stop doing it because I can't talk afterwards, it turns out. The judge, Lord Justice Butts. <laughs> Lord Justice Butts. Donned his black cap. Ah, oh, good. And he sentenced the two sisters to death by hanging. Yep. On hearing the sentence, Margaret collapsed in the courtroom. Catherine was stoic. 14 years older, knew what she was getting into it. Probably knew the outcome before she went in. Yeah, I expect she did. Uh, since the ultimate punishment had already been doled out to both women, it was decided not to continue and prosecute for the other three victims. We we have literally talked about that before. That they will try down a list. Yeah, and go well. We've got you on. If we get you on murder for this one, it doesn't matter what the other six charges are. Yeah. But if we don't get you on murder for this one, we'll try your number two. And then we'll try a number three, because eventually they're going to get the outcome that they need to. Yeah. Um, not that I'm saying it was skewed, but like if, if you were on trial for... So what are we talking about here? Four murders. Four murders. So they're going to try them on each of them individually, because yes. you're much more likely to get a convi- conviction in that way of travelling. Yeah. Whether it's the right thing to do or not is... Questionable. For, for history to judge. Yeah. So after the trial, Catherine and Margaret were sent to Kirkdale Prison. To await their fate. That's a new one. I don't think we've spoken about Kirkdale before. We don't spend a lot of time in Liverpool. No, we don't. Maybe we need to do more of that. I'd do a Liverpool accent, but I can't. You're barred from accents, remember? Oh, that's right. Apart from French. Uh, no. No? No, because... I'm barred from French as well now. Well, I had to... Genuinely had to edit out three hockey haws. <laughs> yeah, but they, were, they weren't that good. Oh. I had to take them out the last episode. The two sisters were kept in separate cells uh, and the prison guards read passages of the Bible to them before the prison chaplain attended them. As a punishment? Partly as a punishment, partly as entertainment. They were both illiterate, obviously. <laughs> I was going to say they danced around and did the scenes. No. <clears throat> it's not like Bible panto? No. Okay. It wasn't like a school kid's nativity play. <laughs> With all the prisoner officers in it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Somebody dressed as the baby Jesus in a little cradle. Nah, you never actually put somebody in the cradle because you need all your adult stars for the back row. I've got to be the donkey and the three wise men. Exactly. Not going to fuck about with that. Sweet. So on a freezing cold morning, uh, Monday, the 3rd of March, 1884, Catherine Flanagan and Margaret Higgins were hanged inside Kirkdale Prison. Uh, Simultaneously? Yes. Okay. Since well, when, sorry, 1887. Yep. Long drop. Yes. Right. And obviously since 1868. Yep, absolutely right. Well done, Al. Well uh, done, Al. The public had not been allowed to view executions. It was, beh- it was done behind closed walls. Exactly. Yeah. They uh, would have gathered outside the prison to wait for a flag to change. I was going to say, nonetheless, a crowd of over a thousand people yeah. Turned up to watch the black flag being raised. That's a small crowd. Above the prison wall. Did you mean a thousand? Yeah, a thousand. 
That is a small crowd. I would have gone compared to previous ones. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about it's surprising, isn't it? Because it's entertainment back then. I suppose no TV. I suppose by that point you're you know what fifteen years behind the walls, so it maybe wasn't quite the same as going to see it in its spectacle. No, and um, but still a thousand people is a lot of people. I'd like a thousand people to listen to the podcast every week. That'd be wonderful. Smash that like bar. Smash that like bar, everybody. And we might reach a thousand people a week. Oh, we, we definitely do. Do we? <laughs> Way more. Oh, why are you saying that? I don't know. Uh, Go for 20,000. Go for 100,000. Go crazy. Uh, a million. What would be good is if we got one of the old school true crime audiences from like medieval times when we were getting like 150,000 a hanging. Yeah. That, that's how many people should be listening to our podcast now. Yes. Every single one of them would enjoy it because it'd be contemporary for them. Yeah. 150,000 <laughs> like bar smashes. Yeah, that's the problem though. But if we were doing a podcast then, there'd be no Facebook. But loads of folk would be into it because we were talking about them. It would just be us shouting yeah. from a tower. And there would be a bar, an actual bar that you could smash. I'm into it. Yeah. Maybe we should go back in time. No. Okay. Anyway, so... That is essentially the story, but at the very start, I mentioned a conspiracy. Yeah, so I don't see anything wrong with this so far. Like, what you've told me, Margaret and Catherine, uh, they got into a shady part of life, shall we say, by yes. money lending and not by the pub, the money lending, then the, the uh, residence, DOS house, whatever we're going to call it. Um, so they weren't skirting on the verges of high society at any point. No. So everything you've said, like, to me, is a sta- is, that's a Twisted Britain episode. We've yep. got uh, women, poisoners, money, hanged. We're at, at the end. Yeah, but these, these two women poisoned four separate people, all insured or covered by burial societies, that were the same insurers and burial societies each time. Yeah. Now, after maybe two, you'd be think you'd be asking questions. I was going to say we. I actually said that earlier. When you're talking about when when the um, the big money started to be questioned for, they would have known all the the, the brokers and the, the lenders in the area, so they would know each other. They'd yeah, hundred percent know each other. They would a hundred percent. Know each other. Red flags should have been raised after the second death. So your conspiracy is that they were all profiting? And more. Okay. Uh, At the time of her arrest, Catherine claimed to her solicitors that the murders the sisters committed were not isolated. And she provided at least six or seven other deaths that she claimed to be murders related to the burial society fraud as she called it, as well as a list of five other women who had either perpetrated those murders or provided insurance for those who did. So you're, we're going spider web of conspiracy here. Yes. Catherine Flanagan's list of alleged conspirators to the arsenic deaths contained three other poisoners apart from herself and one accomplice and three agents of insurance groups or burial societies, who had provided payouts upon their deaths. It's quite a gang she's gathered there. 
Yeah, it is really interesting. Uh, the poisoners were her sister. She obviously pointed the finger at her. Yes. Margaret Higgins. Uh, also, a lady by the name of Margaret Evans and Bridget Begley was named as poisoners. And these were named at the trial? Yes. And a Mrs. Margaret Potter, a Mrs. Flannan, and a Bridget Stanton were employees of burial societies and insurance companies who put their names on the claims. So they were the financial end of the poisoning scam. Exactly. So you, had, you literally had two brackets of women there. Yeah. A group of women who were actively poisoning people and a group of women who were paying out on it because they knew what was going on. Yes, and one accomplice, Catherine Ryan, who was alleged to have obtained the arsenic needed by most of the poisoners. So it wasn't just flypaper that they used? No. Uh, Margaret and Catherine definitely used flypaper because that was confirmed in the autopsy, but Catherine claimed that the other poisoners were using arsenic obtained by Catherine Ryan. So there was a, I don't know, like a, there was like a poison ivy in the middle. Yeah, kind of. According to Flanagan, uh, Catherine Flanagan, Margaret Evans had been the instigator of the crime ring, the mastermind, if you will, which began with the murder of a mentally handicapped teenager, which uh, Ryan obtained the poison for killing and Evans administered. And might be the worst sentence you've ever said on the podcast. I know. Uh, now, Evans, I've looked at this case, and uh, Evans didn't personally receive any insurance payout from the death, but she was heavily implicated with the boy's father. Okay. And he did profit greatly. Yeah, to the point where it was worth the family having the money. Yes. Uh, the other women that Flanagan alleged to have been involved in the conspiracy all appear often in accounts of suspicious deaths around this period in Liverpool. Mrs. Stanton, for example, was linked to insurance policies of three or four other suspicious deaths. Uh, and groups of two or more of the involved women were seen visiting the houses of women and men who had died shortly before their deaths. So there was definitely a network of something going on here. Yeah. Uh, in one case, when an insurance company supervisor requested to meet Thomas Higgins... Yep. Uh, in the house that they stayed in, which was the first one. Not before the lodging house. Uh, no, which was the lodging house. Which was before the 27 house. Ascot. Yes, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. In one case, when an insurance company supervisor requested to meet Thomas Higgins uh, in the original lodging house before 27 Ascot, um, because of that £50 insurance... Oh, yeah, the, the, the first dude that caused... The, the hangings. The, the guy that went, I'm not all right with this. Yeah. Yeah. He was actually greeted at the door by a woman who was neither Catherine Flanagan nor Margaret Higgins. She's a random. Oh, an accomplice, an shall accomplice. we say. An accomplice, yes. That's uh, better word and she than presented random. to him Thomas Higgins. Ah, yes. But when that insurance supervisor reviewed the body of Thomas Higgins, it was quite clear that the Thomas Higgins he'd met was not Thomas Higgins. Not the same guy. It's just a corpse. Abs, yeah. You seem quite bought into this conspiracy part of it, Al. Well, I, I spent some fun times researching it. Right, okay. Do finish it. I have some questions for you. Now, Flanagan's testimony was contradictory at times. Okay. Both to herself and to what we know 
were facts of the case. Uh, in one case, Mrs. Stanton, despite her close links to the insurance payouts of murder victims and Flanagan's identification of her as part of the conspiracy, Catherine then exonerated her after police arrested the woman. Why? No idea. First, she pointed her out to the authorities, and then when they arrested her, she gave her an alibi. That just, that's mad. It makes n- almost no sense. I can't, I can't process that. that can't, there's no reason why. So, ultimately, because of inconsistencies like that, the prosecuting solicitors for Liverpool decided that while the additional deaths were indeed very likely to be murder, it would be difficult to prove that anyone apart from Catherine Flanagan or Margaret Higgins had actually committed them. So they'd have got the, not, they'd have got the third verdict. Yes. In, in Scotland, they'd have got a not proven. Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially considering the primary evidence against them was being provided by what was now a convicted criminal. Oh, yeah. She's just grassing at this point. Yeah, and she had every reason to attempt to minimise her own responsibility in the case as well. Is she still, like, even, even by doing that, is she minimising it? Because she's still involved in every particle of it. She's involved in every particle of it, but if, if you believe all of her lies, yeah, okay. Margaret was the one that did most of it. She extracted the arsenic from the flypaper. She administered it to the people in the lodgings. She was the criminal mastermind in all of this. By Catherine's story, Catherine was just there. I mean, that's not true. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. Okay. She owned the boarding house. She, facil- well, she facilitated it, if nothing else. Yeah. But as a result, only Catherine Flanagan and Margaret Higgins were actually tried for the crimes. Uh, despite continuing suspicion by all investigating parties that there had been more deaths than just the four household ones and more murderers than just those two sisters, it wasn't pursued any further. So, may I interject slightly on this point then? Of course you can. Is that then a conspiracy that they weren't the only people or was that the law of the time saying we've convicted someone? Ooh. So, based on... It's a, it's a little bit the law of the time. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like, just basically on listening to what you've talked about. And, it is. And you get onto the conspiracy bit and you get a bit more happy about talking about it because it's clearly the reason why you, you like this story. It's very good. Um, it's just an interesting thought to go... Is it conspiracy because it's fun to look at other things that have happened at the same time? But we've talked about a million poisoners in the 1800s. Now, not that I'm saying that the same thing was happening within a close circle of friends without it being a conspiracy to have um, a bit a bigger thing. But to me, it's probably a case of the law of the time. I think it is. It's that way that you just go, that's the easy out. We've done, we've completed it, ticked it, box done. Yeah. Boxes are ticked, crimes are solved. Yeah. Somebody smoked a cigar, had a wonderful moustache, and moved on to the next gruesome case, which if we're talking 1880s, I ah, nah, they wouldn't have done Jack. But, you know, not too long after that, you're talking about the biggest serial killer and myth and mythology that comes with Jack not that long afterwards. So they, they, they cleaned this up pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, I'm not even bothered about the conspiracy. I find the... Um, Interaction between the two sisters just mad. They clearly had no care for any other human being. 
I mean, Catherine callously murdered her son. That's what I mean. You, she's, the two of them are absolutely removed. That's from, insane. To go that deep for money. Now, we talk about it all the time. 90% of the crimes we talk about are about money. But that, that one's like, that's mad. Doesn't matter. Kill and the, also, killed her son John, for five grand. John Flanagan as well, was 22 years old. Yeah. He's not a financial burden. No. He's helping them run this boarding house. He's probably making it easy for them. Yeah. And probably running security. I nearly said this to you during the time when we were recording that. Like, a 22-year-old male to have around a house like that that you're lodging out was probably an asset. Yeah, very handy. You know, he's, he's, he's not going to be 2022, 22-year-old that's... He's a slim dock worker type human being. And I yeah. don't want to be overly generic about that, but you know what I mean? It's not like... He'd have been a, an asset, is what I he mean. He would. Although at the same time, and Bob will post a picture on the Facebook page because I'll give it to him. Catherine Flanagan looks hard as a coffin nail. Hard as a coffin nail. I would not mess with her. Fine. And apparently nobody, apparently nobody did. No. Well, because I suppose you'd have to be like that to run the, the industries that she ran from pub to money, yeah. money lending to, to Very larger. disreputable pub to disreputable money lender hard. to... Hard as a coffin's nail. Skanky, yeah. Hard I'm as a coffin nail. I'm enjoying that. Um, do you know what? We're going to leave it on that because I need a pee. And we've talked a lot this evening. We're at way, way over where we were normally record. But you'll get a normal episode. And I hope very much you've enjoyed You'll get a normal episode. How much of this episode are you going to have to cut, Bob? Oh, quite a lot of it, man. Um, no matter where you are or what time it is, I hope you've enjoyed this all around the world at whatever time of the day is. Good morning, good afternoon. Hope you have a lovely lunch. Uh, good evening, good night, sweet dreams. Whatever it happens to be for you just now, we are happy to send them your direction. Yeah, this was a great fun episode for me to research, even if it's going to be an absolute nightmare for Bob to edit. 100% a nightmare for me to edit. I, I enjoyed your coming back to your paper from the iPad. I did that. He's transitioned on several several mediums this evening, uh, but your enjoyable bit of that was definitely the conspiracy. You're a full believer that other things happened. Yeah, I am. Right. Yeah, I think that there were a ring of insurance agents who were willing to put policies on people that they knew were being insured in other companies and in other burial societies. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is an entire, like, conspiracy that's easy for you. But maybe they were just poisoners, Al. Maybe they were just a pair of poisoners, and we'll never know that. I don't believe it. I'm not 100% with you that other shit was going on. If it's, if it's easy to prove... Uh, these people are, are done for that and we can ignore that. I reckon that's probably what happened. Anyway, we're going to move on this evening. We've talked enough pish. This is going to be... Yeah, I need a whittle. I need a whittle too. But what you should do before we go for a whittle... Is smash that like button. Smash that like button. You should follow us on social media. We are... What platforms are we on, Alistair? We are on the Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram. And something that Bob tells me is called Threads. Twitter's called X. We've covered this before now. I'm not convinced. I thought you were lying when you told me that. No, 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 man. That's a real thing. It's actually a thing. Anyway, follow us wherever you want to do so. You'll find us by looking for Twisted Britain. If you want to um, speak to Ali and myself um, on a level beyond just the group page, you can find us on Twisted Britain Discussion Group on Facebook, which was... There's been a load of interaction recently. There's this guy called Ali Downey who's 
been posting on it, and I'm not sure who he is, but apparently he's got the same name as you. He does have the same name as me. Weird. It man. is me. It's not fucking you. It is me. I posted on it. If you Sarah made me do it. Almost a hundred episodes into this podcast, believe that Alistair is on she social media. Me you it. should you should find us and 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 look at it. Anyway, I have nothing else to say. No, me neither. This has been a great episode for me to research and write, and I can't wait to hear what you edit out of this. Thank you very much. I, I have Poppy for on the recording this evening, and then Isaac, and then us. So I will leave us, as always, with a thank you, love you, bye. Thank you, love you, bye. Thank you, bye. Thank you, love you, bye. I can hear myself. <laughs> <laughs>